So in 30 years of missions work, Kim and I have been on a lot of teams, worked with people from many different cultures, experienced the joys of working alongside, uh, alongside colleagues that have become close friends. But you know, it doesn't always work. Messy is a normal part of teamwork. How well, think about it. How well do you think you would do if you were randomly assigned to work with a few other people that you've never met before, people who had clear opinions and beliefs about how the work needs to be done, and you have your own clear opinions as well? And just to add a little bit more spice, you both believe that your job is the most important job in the world when it comes to people's eternal destinies. <clears throat> How well do you think you would do? I think it's amazing that it works as well as it does, as often as it does. But the reality is that it's still true that the single greatest cause of missionaries leaving the field is their inability to get along with each other. It's not because they don't like the work or can't handle the cultural differences or struggle to learn language even though all of those are stressful and add to the total stress that missionaries and cross-cultural workers face. The reality remains the ability of one Christian to get along with another Christian is still the single greatest underlying cause of missionary attrition. You know, no one sets out not to get along with their team or to dislike their teammates. It just happens. We live in a broken, shame-filled, painful world. Most missionaries come into ministry with a certain level of pain and history from their own lives that isn't healthy. And that baggage only disqualifies them if they're unable to work it through as they pursue work and ministry, just like we all have to do. And we need help to do this important work. So Paul talks about a very similar problem. I'm going to jump right in on your sermon series in Philippians, and we're going to pick up on chapter, uh, Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 2, which is page 982, if you're using that Bible in the, in the pew in front of you. <clears throat> and just to warn you, those of you Bible scholars and textual critics, that I'm going to change the text. Uh, so I encourage you to get your Bibles out to see where I've changed Um, Okay, so uh, Philippians 4, beginning at verse 2. I entreat Esther and I entreat Sophie to agree in the Lord. Did you see it? See, I'm not a Bible scholar and I really don't want to pronounce those names. So I'm just going to call them Esther and Sophie. Um, I entreat Esther and I entreat Sophie to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord, always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, we just... Well, I just thank you so much for your word and for your truth and for your Holy Spirit to um, bring it to life in our life. Lord, as we look at uh, Esther and Sophie a little bit and Clement and Paul and uh, the church in Philippi, Father, I pray that you would show us what we need to see here at Brush Prairie, what, what I need to see. And... Um, yeah, we just thank you that you are reliable and trustworthy and honorable and faithful to do all of those things. So we look forward to hearing what you have to say to us in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I entreat uh, Esther, I almost forgot their names. I entreat Esther and I entreat Sophie to think the same thing. This phrase, think the same thing, uh, we first, you first encountered it back in chapter 2, which I think was in the, in the reading this morning. Think the same as Christ. Have the same mind as Christ. It's the same little phrase. And, <clears throat> and, and I'm just uh, wondering whether Paul was thinking about uh, Esther and Sophie when he wrote that first in chapter 2. Oh, I need to get the foundation in here so that later I can talk about Sophie and Esther. Or, as he's writing now about Esther and Sophie, is he going, oh yeah, that's right, that thing back that I wrote earlier applies here. E either way, everyone is awake now. Can you imagine someone's reading out, and you're all just kind of listening, and suddenly your name is said? Can you imagine? What, whose name here could I? No, a bunch of you are getting a little nervous. <laughs> Those of you that don't know me very well, I think you're safe. Yeah, you could, your ears would perk up, even if you weren't that person, but you were just friends with that person or you knew that person. So I think everyone was kind of suddenly electrified, if you will. These were important women. You know, women had a key role in the development of the churches of Macedonia, and Esther and Sophie would have been well known, at least in Philippi, if not in a wider area. And when Paul says they labored with him in the work of the gospel, he uses a, a, a gladiatorial word, apparently, to give a picture of the effort they put in. We, we could say, they fought side by side with me. Paul could have said, they fought as two gladiators side by side with Paul. I think Paul actually also wants to honor these two women. At the same time, he wants to encourage them to work out their differences. He makes a point to say that they have been working hard together with Paul in the work of the gospel. They are partners. I think he also mentions Clement to ground their honor in the local context as honor is given through association. Why is this important? Because to name them in this letter could be seen as quite shameful. This isn't a pleasant thing to be talking about, their disagreement. And the last thing Paul wants to do is to bring shame on these two women. He wants to do quite the opposite and encourage them 
And the best way to do that is to actually honor them. Because honor is an antidote to shame. Do you remember there was a series of really great sermons about a year ago, I think, preached from right here on shame. Did you begin to get the idea and understanding that the concept of shame is just dripping out of all of the Old and New Testament? Just about most of the time you can see some aspect of shame in, in a passage. I'm probably overstating a little bit there. should be careful. And because it's shame, it's only just subtly there in this passage, in the text. There are no flashing lights, no neon signs. Paul know, but Paul knows it's there, and he doesn't want either these women or the church in Philippi to get tripped up by the issues of shame. Don't get me wrong, shame isn't the point of what's going on between these two women, but it is there, and I think we miss something when we ignore its presence in this scene. And I mention it too because shame is one of the key issues that, and I will say this quite strongly, probably 90, 95% of the time I deal with with any missionary that sits down in front of me. In some way, shape, or form, shame is there. But just like this passage, it's actually really quite hard to work with. And I can think of at least two reasons for that. One, it's hard to work with because, well, it's shame. And by its very nature, shame wants to hide. It wants to stay out of sight. It's a major strategy the enemy uses to derail us, to point us in the wrong direction, or to simply slow us down. The enemy wants us to be convinced that there is something inherently wrong with us, and that we're lucky that God even thinks about us, although we're often convinced he probably doesn't. And we continue to think it's probably best that we just keep quiet about it so that God, or certainly not people in the church, would ever find out how inadequate we actually are. And the other reason it's hard to work with directly is that in the West, we don't actually believe that shame even exists. And so we can't fight something we don't even believe is there. It also means that we don't have the words to even talk about shame. Eastern cultures, with their concept of saving faith, face, excuse me, with their concept of saving face, uh, of not being embarrassed, and their, um, their honoring of elders. They actually have an advantage over us because they, they know that shame exists. And so when they see it in themselves or others, they actually recognize it. So here, Paul doesn't want Esther and Sophie to be crippled by shame and just roll over and slink away, which is what shame wants to make us do. He wants them to address their behavior and attitude and come through it with their identities intact strong and able to continue laboring hard together with him in the work of the gospel. Shame keeps, takes people out of healthy and effective living more efficiently than just about anything else. Let me say that again. Shame takes people out of healthy and effective living more efficiently than just about anything else. You can ask me about that later, but just be aware, I'll talk to you for probably about a half hour about that particular uh, sentence in itself. And we see the damaging effects of shame more than just about anything else that missionaries face. And we see a lot of things. <clears throat> it appears that the true companion here in the verse that Paul's talking about was well known to, to everyone involved. It, was obviously, it could have been Epaphroditus, it could have been Luke, it could have been 
one of the elders in the church. Uh, we, we, we don't know. Uh, it just appears from the text that everyone knew who it was. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. women. <clears throat> Paul trusts this person to listen to both of them, to treat them with respect and to help them find a way forward that involves them thinking the same thing. Remember, it says, I entreat Esther and I entreat Sophie to agree in the Lord, to think the same thing in the Lord. And, and just a side note, I'm going to persist using this kind of awkward direct translation of this phrase, to think the same thing, because it helps me keep focused on what Paul is trying to get across. If I start using words like um, unity or agreement, it's easy for me to lose focus and wander into other areas of unity and agreement. It seems to be quite a big topic, but I want to keep kind of focused on what Paul's getting at here. And because he uses that phrase several times in Philippians. Notice, too, that Paul doesn't dictate how the person is to help, how this companion is to help these two women. Paul trusts this person and the church to help in the best way. You know, a helper, this helper, doesn't go in with their mind made up about the right, rightness or wrongness of, a, of the situation, even if it's obvious. For starters, in my experience, it's, it's, ever, it's never actually that simple. And perhaps more importantly, if one party is clearly wrong and you tell them, they'll just become defensive and deny it. You don't get anywhere. But if you're neutral and just listen to the story and are patient and accepting, they will most often see their own wrongness and make appropriate choices. But you have honored them by listening to them rather than shaming them by telling them what they've done wrong. To listen is, is to value a person. And a person is valuable even when they were, are wrong. A person is valuable even when they are wrong. And that makes a powerful difference. The next time you are, you are in disagreement with someone, I'm assuming you will be in disagreement at some point with someone at some point in your life, ask yourself, how do I honor this person that I disagree with? How do I honor this person who is wrong? You might even say to yourself. <clears throat> even if someone is obviously at fault, it doesn't negate their life and contribution to ministry. Going in with your mind made up is most often received as, oh, you think I'm a bad person, don't you? Rather than, oh, you think I've made a mistake. There is a universe of difference between being a bad person and being someone who has made a mistake. And in the case of these two women, it seems pretty clear that neither of them is clearly at fault. Because I don't think Paul would be afraid to say or at least to allude to it. Could be wrong. Most often, it's not even about who's right and who's wrong or about blame. Because in fact, both can be right or both can have some right and some wrong. The point here is the piece of thinking the same thing or the absence of disagreement. That's the point, the piece of thinking the same thing. <clears throat> we go back to chapter 2 where it says, Have, think the same thing as Christ. That's our model as we interact with one another. In fact, the true, the true companion will likely go into this conflict resolution with two conflicting thoughts. They will go in with the idea that one, that Esther and Sophie are both wrong, 
and two, that Esther and Sophie are both right. That's how you approach. Well, that's one of the ways to approach conflict resolution. No one sets out to be ornery and obnoxious. We all set out to be helpful and wise and loving and all kinds of good things. So the true companion will need to start there, the helper. And that's generally my stance as I encounter people who are in disagreement. Often the disagreements I'm hearing are team members upset with team leaders. And my starting point is almost always that both the team member and the team leader are right, that both have a valid point, and I assume that both are probably wrong. So even when that is the senior area leader telling me who's right and who's wrong, when I get to that situation, I don't believe what the senior area leader tells me. I, I don't tell the senior area leader that I'm not believing them but I approach those two people or that situation with an open mind. And because we are usually working, actually we're usually just working with one side of the conflict, usually just with, on a Skype call with a, with a missionary, our job is to help them go back to their leader with a healthy plan to work through the conflict or, or the misunderstanding. So here's what I want you to remember from this little section. When you are in disagreement with someone, and it will happen, because I can't believe that any team you're on is going to be better than the Apostle Paul's team. But if you're not aware of any disagreements at the moment, well, praise the Lord. Great. But when you do find yourself in disagreement with someone, resolve it. But even more importantly, get help. Accept help. Don't wait or hope for it to go away. This is a case where denial is not an option. It's not a healthy option. There are times where denial is a healthy option, but they're limited, and, but this isn't one of them. And if someone asks help, asks you for help in resolving a disagreement, help them. Don't leave them. Don't make it worse. Don't choose sides. Don't have an opinion about who's right and who's wrong. Because that's to shame one of them. Help them to think the same thing. That's your role as the helper. And, and you do that by helping them hear each other. You can at least help them see the places where they already do agree. Okay, let's go on. <clears throat> rejoice in the Lord always, it says in verse 4. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's a little um, equation here, I see anyway, the way I look at this, uh, an equation or an algorithm, if you will. And, and it starts with celebrate, rejoice, if you take... Uh, celebration, and you add being considerate or being gentle with one another, reasonable, and then you add turning your worries into prayer. You do all three of those things, and the outcome is the peace of God. That's kind of a simplistic way I kind of see this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This is the third time Paul has returned to the theme of rejoice in Philippians First in chapter 2, chapter 3, and now in chapter 4. And it's the first component in our little equation. 
and it is to celebrate, to have a party, rejoice. He doesn't say, Paul doesn't say that thinking the same thing as Jesus and one another is to think hard on God and what he's done for you and all mankind. He doesn't say, be sober and serious as you journey through life. He doesn't say, make sure you don't let other people think that you're not taking life seriously enough. No, he doesn't say that. He says, rejoice. Paul was in prison as he wrote this. He wasn't sure whether he would live or die. Uh, I want to thank Pastor Bob for uh, uh, telling me in last week's sermon that uh, uh, Paul, I think, was in prison at least two and a half years, he said. Uh, Two and a half years, unjustly in prison. And he says, party, celebrate, rejoice. And just in case they thought I was confused, he writes, I say it again, rejoice. So, who's going to celebrate this afternoon? (laughs) If you promise not to tell anyone, I want to let you in a little secret, but you can't tell anyone, okay? I'll tell you a little something about myself as I listen to people. I often laugh, hopefully with them. I often laugh while taking them completely seriously. Let me use Paul here to defend myself. You know, life is difficult. Terrible things can happen to us. And we often can even make poor decisions. Paul says, rejoice anyway. And one of my favorite ways to rejoice is to laugh. And while I don't want to hurt anyone, I also don't want to take things so seriously that I forget how to rejoice in the midst of difficulty. You know, just the other day, Kim and I were were, uh, sitting down with someone who was ministering to us, and we were saying some difficult things, and he started laughing, and I felt so good, (laughs) because I recognized that's what I do to people, and and it did. It it just lifted uh, the conversation at that point. I think that's similar to what Paul is encouraging us to do here. The ink isn't even dry from encouraging these two women to work out their disagreement. And he's telling them and us to party and celebrate the incredible and unbelievably good God. People who think the same thing celebrate together. Paul goes on, as you celebrate God, be nice to each other, I would say. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. I wonder if Sophie and Esther have gotten over the shock of hearing their names to catch this, that Paul's asking them to be gentle and patient with each other. I imagine if they were disagreeing enough for Paul to mention it, that they weren't being gentle and patient with each other. And there's a powerful word that God uses to describe himself in the Old Testament. And it's it's often translated steadfast loving kindness. You've probably heard of it. It's a powerful word that speaks of God's covenant with us and how everything depends on him. But at the heart of the word is just one word, and it's just one word in Hebrew. And at the heart of it is the word kindness. And I find it amazing that one of the most often repeated character traits of God in the Old Testament has to do with God being kind. Let your reasonableness be known to to others. Be kind. My mind goes straight to the fact that my supreme example is God himself and his kindness toward his people and all of mankind. Paul goes on. 
Next verse 6. My numbers are really tiny in my notes. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Don't be anxious about anything. You know, I hate that phrase, don't be anxious, don't worry, if there's nothing else that, goes, that comes along. Because if you tell me not to worry or not to be anxious, the first thing I'm going to do is worry and be anxious. There's some nods out there. You, you've seen that. And I don't know about you, but I have a multitude of voices and thoughts and ideas in my head. Many of them are even good. Are your voices like mine, though, where they just end up creating a clatter of noise and indecision and frustration and anxiety? There are lots of important things to think about, to learn, to accomplish, to figure out, to remember. Missionaries have lots of voices in their heads. Voices that tell them they aren't working hard enough, which just leads to them working too hard. They have voices that question whether they'll ever learn the language. Some voices tell them that someone else could do their job better than they could. Voices that worry about their health. Voices that worry about their kids. Voices that worry about their security, their physical security. This sounding familiar at all, any of these? They worry about understanding the culture they live and minister in. They hear imaginary voices of their churches and supporters asking them if they are getting enough value for their missionary buck. Voices that worry about money. Kim and I worry about money. Well, maybe I worry about money. We did some financial planning before, uh, before this trip, looking at budgets and stuff. And, and we asked ourselves, how much money do we need to raise to, to catch up and to be, able to, to, visit, to be able to go out and visit missionaries in their place of ministry to do a debrief or to uh, help out in an unusual crisis situation? And the first voice came into my head, and it did some figuring, and it said, we need to raise $1,400 a month. Whew, that's a lot. Then Kim had a little talk with that voice. And uh, we added some things in that, I, that that voice was missing, and it was down closer to $1,000 a month. Then a second voice, and I've got many, kicked in. There's no way we can raise $1,000 a month when we're only here for six weeks. Then God's voice came in several weeks later, but within the first few weeks of us being in the States, we've been here three weeks now, and through some very faithful friends, we've already seen God provide almost half of that $1,000 a month through some very generous gifts. Praise the Lord, yeah. Missionaries worry. They play tapes of troubling voices in their heads. They get anxious. Just like you, yes, we worry about money. We worry about our kids. We worry about our health. <clears throat> Note that Paul isn't telling us to ignore those issues. He's not saying try and pretend they don't exist. He's saying to turn them into prayer. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I find this an absolutely crucial principle in helping people and in working through my own struggles. If there's something that I need to stop doing, I must ask myself, what will I do instead? <clears throat> if I'm going to stop worrying about money, what do I need to do instead? Well, you know, it's right there in front of you. I need to pray about it. 
I didn't do the best job in the world, but I was able to pray. And while I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, uh, because I think it's just a little bit later, I found other things to do rather than to worry beyond prayer. Just going through the motions. We got on the plane. We met with people. We've spoken at other churches already on, on this trip. We let people know that they could receive our emails. We, um, that they could pray for us. We let people know that if God prompted they could give financially so we can continue to provide pastoral care, debriefing, and counseling to missionaries and aid workers. Paul says, when you find yourself worrying about things, turn those worries into prayers. And it sounds so simple. It sounds a bit trite. It sounds like something that in a counseling session I wouldn't say because it's too, uh, what's the word? Too simple. But it is true if we could get a hold of it. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. I think this is from the New Living Translation. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. So our little mini equation, our little mini algorithm is complete, and we now have a chance at God's peace. Celebrate, rejoice. It's the first thing. Even before the ink is dry on uh, working on resolution of conflict, rejoice. Be considerate, be gentle, be compassionate with one another, and turn your worries into prayer. And the outcome is the peace of God. Do you know what the peace of God is? I'm not sure I really know, but I know it's different than, than what I've really ex experienced. I want to challenge myself, I want to challenge you to do whatever it takes to meditate, to contemplate, to pray about, to, to study, and, and ask yourself something like, what does the peace of God look like? Where in the Bible do you see the peace of God? Who's someone that you know who lives the peace of God? What would it be like for you to be that way? When have you known God's peace in your own life? Mull, mull that over. Ponder that. Look for those things. How about this? If you woke up tomorrow morning and really knew God's peace, what would be different? Would you eat your bowl of cereal like this? Or would you be listening to the birds tweet? And probably not, but what would it be? What would it be to eat your bowl of cereal or your muffin or your piece of toast or drink your coffee? Well, that's got caffeine. That's going to be hard to be peaceful with caffeine. Anyway, what does God's peace look like? I don't think I could communicate that to you, so I encourage you to grab a hold of that. Take whatever time it takes to figure out what it is. Let the peace of God seep into the nooks and crannies of your life through turning your worries into prayer. Okay, let's go on. Finally, <clears throat> finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace, there it is again, the God of peace will be with you. Paul's on a roll now. Not only should you pray instead of worrying, here's a whole list of things the Philippians can be doing in order to think the same things together. Again, if you want to stop some unhealthy habit, you have to replace it with a healthy one. If you want the God of peace to be with you, you need to practice things that lead to peace, things that are true, that are honorable, that are just, that are pure, that are lovely, that are commendable. Is, is lovely a kind of a strange word in America? It's a very common word in, in Britain, that, that something is lovely, someone is lovely. Uh, I don't know. I didn't really get a clear answer from the first service on that one, but it's, uh, it just strikes me as not particularly American, but oh well. Lovely. What is it to think on things that are lovely? Think about these things. Mull them over. Ponder them. Remember those voices in, in my head, at least, maybe in yours? All the myriad of things we have to do that we have, the, have a habit of worrying about. Maybe you can do what I kind of do and organize a little conference of all those voices and, and let them know that you're going to be spending more time letting these kinds of ideas bounce around, these ideas from Paul, not the worrying ideas. Maybe you need to say in that conference, I'm going to start worrying about being true, about being honorable, and about people who are honorable. I'm going to ponder what it means for me to be just and to act justly at work, at school, in the house, with my friends. You can even ask those voices to work with you. Instead of all the things they're used to worrying about, maybe they can apply their energies and help you ponder the things that Paul is suggesting here. You know, I had to have a little conference with my voices about money, wor- uh, about money worries. I even invited Kim to that conference, although she didn't really know it was a conference. <clears throat> and we worked out that we have some wonderful churches, friends, prayer warriors, and financial supporters. They are honorable people. They are lovely. And they are excellent That was and still is our focus. So even before we saw any progress in our finances, it was pretty hard to be overly worried. It wasn't perfect, but it was a whole lot better than it could have been. I suspect that some of you here get what I mean when I talk about these different voices in our head, and perhaps others of you don't. But it's the same idea as the different tapes and messages that we run over and over in our heads. And, and some people will, will even resonate with the idea that there are different parts of you that do these different things. These are just all different ways to talk about the normal, normal but less than healthy chatter in our heads. And remember, normal isn't always healthy. But it is normal, which means common. And when I think about trying to make that chatter more peaceful, I want that chatter, those voices, those tapes, those parts of me to spend more time on Paul's list here. You know, the brain is incredibly complex and creative, but it's also highly suggestive. We get into patterns and habits because they are efficient. And there's been a lot of research to demonstrate what Paul is telling us here. The things you think about and ponder and mull over and ruminate on in your mind will go a long ways to determining how you act and behave. 
So God, Paul's encouraging us here to be proactive with that God-given tendency and choose carefully what you focus your mind and your heart on. Choose things that are true, that are honorable, whatever is pure, whatever is just, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable or excellent or worthy of praise. Choose to put your mind on those things rather than just allow your mind to wander into the worries and anxieties. So when you are in a disagreement with someone or aren't thinking the same thing as someone else, it's a very healthy and it's very spiritual to remind yourself, what is honorable about this person? What is lovely about them? Where do I see them acting justly and fairly, even when I disagree with them? Imagine if you could, you could verbalize all those positive things to that person along with the one or two things you just happen to be in disagreement about. And to be fair, I think we, you, you probably do this quite often and naturally as, as, as we've matured in the faith, we learn to do these kinds of things. But there are times when something out of the ordinary happens and someone just needs a little reminder that that person that they are struggling with isn't actually a one-eyed, saber-toothed monster, which is, that's what they are suddenly, aren't they? We find that part of our job in member care is to actually help people be honest about how, without realizing it, they are thinking of someone as a one-eyed, saber-toothed monster. We just reflect that back to them and simply ask, is that really what the person is like? Nine times out of ten, they agree that it's not accurate. And then they can finally start to think more clearly about the, the disagreement and about the person. They, they can begin to talk with them as a normal human being rather than a one-eyed monster. <clears throat> We've all met people who were convinced are a one-eyed monster, but then on another day they seemed quite like a decent human being, don't they? People seem to flip-flop between what, um, what suit they're wearing. Paul's suggesting here that we should spend more time seeing the true, the honorable, the pure, the just, the lovely, the commendable parts of people and less time seeing their one-eyed monster part. And let's be honest, most of us here have at least one one-eyed saber-toothed monster part within us. Or is that just me? You're making me nervous. <laughs> Right from the very beginning, missionaries and people in churches struggled with each other. Working together is messy. Working on teams is messy. No one sets out to make a mess. No one has a grand plan to make someone else's life difficult. No one sets out to disagree with their teammate or their leader. But we live in a broken, shame-filled, painful world. We bring all of our baggage to the relationships we have today. And this is at least the second time in Philippians that Paul has made an appeal to us to deal with our messiness by thinking the same thing. Paul says our goal is to think the same thing together here. That's, that's his, his uh, charge to uh, Sophie and Esther. To think the same thing as Christ is what he said back in chapter 2. When that isn't happening, we need help. I need help when that's not happening. And I'll be so bold as to say you need help when that's not happening. And I, and I already know the missionaries need help. And then with his very next breath, Paul says, 
rejoice, celebrate, party. People who think the same thing celebrate together. People who think the same thing are considerate and gentle with each other. People who think the same thing turn their worries into prayer. People who think the same thing know the peace of God. People who think the same thing order their whole inner world around ideas, thoughts, and attitudes of truth, of honor, of justice, of purity, of loveliness, things that are commendable, excellent things, praiseworthy things. People who think the same thing know the genuine presence of the God of peace. Do you think the same thing as others here at Brush Prairie? Which of these ideas that Paul gives here do you most need in order to think the same thing as your brother or sister in Christ? Do you need to celebrate? Do you need to turn worries into prayer? Do you need, to, do you need help resolving a, resolving a struggle? Or maybe like Paul, do you need to gently and honorably encourage two people who are struggling? What do you need to ponder? I've really encouraged you to ponder on the idea of what is peace. What is God's peace? What do you need to chew on this week? So I'm going to ask you to just take a moment, and I don't know what what you're like, but with me, when, when God needs to say something to me, and I actually stop and listen, it doesn't take that long for God to say it, because he knows what it is. I find that annoying that he's so obvious, but... But I just want to encourage you to take a moment and stop. And just of all the different things, I feel like I've just spat out a whole series of about 15 different possibilities. What's the one that the Holy Spirit is saying? Yeah, get a hold of this. And whether it's tomorrow or it's Tuesday or it's Wednesday, uh, that you want to spend some time just pondering it. What will move you in the direction of thinking the same thing as Christ? What will move you in the direction of thinking the same thing as one another? Let's pray. Father, whether we hear what that thing is right now, I've heard it just now, or you want to say it to us uh, at 3.15 this afternoon or at, at, at 8.30 tomorrow morning, it doesn't really matter. Give us ears and give us ability to hear what you're wanting to say to us. And I pray for my friends, my brothers and sisters here to know the peace of God. In Jesus' name, amen.